right, good morning. If you've got a Bible, open me to 1 Kings chapter 5, and we are going to look at the second half of King Solomon's life, looking from chapters 5 to chapter 11. So we're going to cover six chapters today. And we began this series last week, if you were with us. If you weren't, I'll catch you up a little bit today. But we were looking now at a study of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, these two books in the Old Testament. And so... Um, in seeing them, I trust that we will see Christ and his goodness as our true and better king. But uh, next week, we're going to take a break from this series uh, just for one week because next week is Baptism Sunday. And so I want to remind you that we had our baptism class this last week. But I want to say to you, friends, that if you would still uh, find that God is calling you into baptism as an act of obedience, and we would welcome you. You can contact the church this week, talk to someone outside in one of those green West Shore shirts, and we'll get your information. We'll uh, follow up with you, and we can talk with you about doing that. Let me say to you, friends in particular, let today, if you are not in Christ, my prayer for you today and throughout the week has been that today would be the day of salvation for you, that you would hear of the mercy of Christ that he is not indifferent towards you, but in fact, God draws near to you in Christ and that you would receive him and walk with him. And uh, in receiving that regenerative work that the Holy Spirit does through belief, through faith, that you would then find yourself moving towards the waters of baptism because it's a declaration of what God has done. For those of you who maybe have in Christ, been in Christ for some time but have never taken that step into baptism, can I just encourage you, now more than ever, the world needs to see bold and humble declarations of the love of God in Christ, and that's what baptism is. You need to step forward in obedience. If you haven't done that, don't be shy. Don't be embarrassed. We are your church family. We want to receive you into the waters of baptism so that you can declare the mercy of God. And we'd love to do that with you. So just want to remind you of that next week. So we'll be taking a break from our study of First and Second Kings so that we can celebrate what God has done in saving men and women for his own glory. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together as we turn now to First Kings chapters 5 through 11, the second half of Solomon's life. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in it we have all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you've provided that for us. We thank you for the way it points to Christ. Help us to see him clearly today. I pray that you would help my mind to be focused now in this time so that your word might come forth with clarity. Holy Spirit, we know ultimately we need you to be our teacher and our instructor. Human words are not sufficient. So we pray that you would cause your word to be brought to bear upon us and that you'd apply it to us and that we would yield before you gladly. Those of us here in the room, those of us at home, let us receive your word with gladness. And whatever it gives us to do or to say or to be, it was to walk in obedience. Thank you, Jesus, that you have brought God near. You are God, and you have come near to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, uh, let me show you a picture. This is my dog. This is Scout. She's a little over a year old, and she was a Christmas gift to the kids last year. I've referenced her before. Scout is a Vishla. Has anyone ever heard of a Vishla? So a handful of you, most people are like, I've never heard of Avishla. How many of you have never heard of Avishla? Yeah, so most of you. So she's super smart, she's super fast, and Velcro, uh, Vishlas have a reputation being known as Velcro dogs, uh, which means that they cannot get close enough to you. If they could, they would get inside you, all right? They want to be as close to you as humanly possible. So here's how my morning routines go these days. I wake up about 5.15 every morning, 
I go to the specific chair that I sit in to have time of prayer and in the word and, in, and just you know, waiting on the Lord and being with the Lord. And Scout has brought a new element to that time with the Lord. I never knew uh, that you know, quiet times are better when your dog comes and cuddles with you while you have a quiet time. So about five minutes after I've been up, Scout will launch out of bed and she will run at a full tilt and jump on top of me. And she will not let me proceed with scripture reading until it's not enough for her to like curl up close to me. She presses against me, almost knocks me off the chair half the time. And it's not enough for her to be touching you. You have to be touching her as well. So she will put her face here until your hand is, you know, petting her and she gets a good rub down. And then, and only then will she say, you may now proceed with your spiritual disciplines, sir. All right. So how many of you have a dog like this? All right, awesome. I'm not alone. A handful of you have a dog. They just can't get close enough. So here's the thing. One of the things that Scout has taught me, as odd as that sounds like, what, what do you learn from that? It's actually a reminder to me of what I'm doing every morning when I go to read God's word and to be with him, is that that is not supposed to be a dry spiritual discipline, but that God, not unlike Scout, although he is not a needy pet, all right, uh, not unlike Scout, wants to be close to me. He wants to be with me. And with Scout pressed up against me, it's hard to not remember that as I go to read the scriptures. This is not an exercise in just reading a text. This is an exercise of remembering that God wants to be with me. And my response is to experience joy in closeness with him. That that's what this time is for. How many of you at times you're, you're I pray you have a spiritual discipline of reading God's word every day and of praying every day. I pray that's part of your life. It needs to be part of your life. But how many of you have found, you don't need to raise your hands, but that at points that can become sort of a cold spiritual discipline, that that affection for God is not at the center of that time. And one of the things I wanna encourage you in is that as we examine the second half of Solomon's life today, we looked at the first half last week because we looked at the second half. The message of the second half of Solomon's life is a really simple one. It's that God wants to be with his people and he has gone to great lengths to be with us. In addition to that, we also learn the lesson that too often God's people do not respond to that initiative that he has taken to be with us with love and obedience. We respond with the opposite of apathy and disobedience. And unfortunately, that's what we'll see in Solomon's life. But I wanna then show you, the question's gonna come to us. Well, if that's the case, that God has done this great work to be near us, but we often don't respond with love and obedience as we should, is there anything that can keep us in that love? Is there anything that can keep us in that obedience that can make us faithful? And the answer is yes, there is. And Solomon's life points to it. So let's look at it together today. We're gonna take it piece by piece. I wanna tell you the story in three parts, all right? So part one of the story is chapters five through eight of 1 Kings. And the part of the story that this tells us is simply this. Here's the theme. God goes to great lengths to be with his people. God goes to great lengths to be with his people. Now, let's remember, by way of review, the first part of Solomon's life. In chapters one through chapter four last week, what we saw is that God had made a promise to Solomon's dad, David, who was the king before him. And he said, I will place a son on the throne after you, one of your sons. And in fact, I promise that one of your sons will always be on the throne. This was both a conditional and an unconditional promise. It's conditional where every successive son of David and grandson and great-grandson will rise and fall in their role as king based upon their faithfulness. 
And that's part of what God says in making this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which he's going to remind us of again and again and again. But he also says there's an unconditional part of that promise, which is no matter how often your sons and grandsons fail and rise and fall, there will come one through your line who will not fail and who will be an eternal king. And we saw last week that God has kept that promise because he has established King Jesus on the throne of David forever. Praise God. So that's the first part that we saw. And then we saw that even in the midst of Solomon sowing some seeds in his life that were unwise and unrighteous, and we're gonna see those seeds come to fruition this week at the end of his life. How many of you know that you can sow seeds early in your life that reap bad harvests later in life? Even when you think, I got away with it. And years and years later, the fruit of that unrighteousness is borne out in our lives. And so this vigilance and diligence is called for. But even in the midst of that, God does something remarkable. In chapter three, last week, we saw that he comes to Solomon by his own initiative and he says, ask anything of me that you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon rightly asks for wisdom. And then the rest of the chapters we saw were a demonstration of that wisdom. He shows that God has fulfilled his promise in making him wise to discern uh, in difficult court cases. He presides and shows profound wisdom. And then in chapter four, we saw that he sets up the administration of his kingdom with great wisdom. In other words, his wisdom spans difficult cases judicially all the way to administrative action and the details of establishing and running a kingdom. Solomon is wise because God keeps his promises. That's what we've seen so far. Now we turn the corner to another stage of Solomon's life in chapter five. And in this, we will find that there's a part of the promise that we didn't talk about last week because I wanted to save it for this week, all right? So when God in 2 Samuel 7 says to David, I'm gonna establish one of your sons on the throne, that's not the only part of that promise that he makes. There was another part to the promise and it was this, David, you want to build a, a, a house for me, a temple. You wanna build a place for me to be worshiped and for me to preside over the nation and draw near to my people. You wanna do that. I'm not gonna allow you to do that for a variety of reasons but your son after you will do it. Here's what I want you to understand. As we come into chapter five, now what we're coming to is the part of Solomon's life where he's gonna begin to live out what he perceives to be his life's purpose. See, God had said to David, Solomon will build the temple, and now he's going to build that temple. And you're gonna see what Solomon does in order to walk in that. But I want you to recognize, this is in Solomon's eyes. Look at this from Solomon's perspective for just a moment. Because Solomon has been born to be king. God has anointed and established him. And his major role as king is to build a house for God. Above all other things, this is the pinnacle moment of Solomon's work and establishing his life. And so we're seeing someone walk in God's purpose for their life. The thing that was spoken about them before they were ever born, that they would do this. Now, one of the things to recognize there is do you and I recognize that God, according to Ephesians 2.10, if you're in Christ, he has established good works for you to do and to walk in before you ever came to Christ, before you were ever born. He prepared those things for you to do. And in doing that, one of the things I want you to see as we read through Solomon's life is that receiving your purpose and your calling from God and your anointing from God to do it is far better than letting your own ambition drive the purpose of your life. It will sustain you through hard seasons and hard times. Maybe this last season has been a hard season in the work that God has given you to do vocationally, let's say. 
or in your family, in your marriage. And God has called you to it. He's anointed you to do it. And when you know that, you can be sustained in hard seasons in a way that if you're just pursuing things because your ambition drives you to them, you will not be sustained in them. Now, ambition can sustain for a while because we can be pretty ambitious for our own glory and our own selves. Would we agree with that? And that can sustain for a while, but friends, it always gives way, particularly when there's not success. It will give way. But if you walk and let God establish the purpose and the calling of your life, and he anoints you to do that work, the thing I want you to know is that you can be sustained in a way that you could not be otherwise. I really, I want you to see that so much. Look, friends, in, in my vocation, in my calling to pastoral ministry, I have watched pastor after pastor after pastor. The percentage is a ridiculous number who during COVID have left the ministry. It's been too much, too heavy. Now listen, friends, I, I love our church family. I, you know, there's been weighty things about this season, but I have not felt nearly the pressure that I feel like some of my brothers have experienced. And they've, they've I, I had a conversation, uh, a follow-up conversation with another brother this week down in Texas who's left the ministry. It's just too much. It was too weighty, right? And listen, I know, I, I, I can't speak to their situations, but what I know is this, is you have to have a profound sense of God's calling and anointing to do the work that he calls you to do in order to be sustained in hard seasons. Now, I trust that God's gonna bring some of, some of my brothers full circle and back into that. I really believe he will. But I can tell you this, at the end of the day, all that matters in your vocation and in mine is, has he called you? Because if he has, then it doesn't matter how hard the circumstances are. It doesn't matter how difficult. All that matters is you have called, I will obey. It's literally it. It's all that matters. Has he called? If he has called, then he will sustain. He will provide. Part of what we're gonna see in Solomon's life today because he's walking in God's purpose for his life. I hope that's meaningful to you because I know some of you are weary. I know some of you are weary, but friends, walk in the call of God. Walk in the call of God. All right, so let me, let me now read you, okay? So starting in chapter five, we're gonna hit some of chapter five, some chapter six, some chapter eight, some chapter nine. We're gonna... We're gonna hit a broad amount of text today, all right? So let's get after it. Chapters five, verses one through six says this. This is a description of what's beginning, the story beginning now, the second half of Solomon's life. It says, now Hiram, king of Tyre, which is a king north of Israel, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. So there's his sense of his purpose in life, right? Now, therefore, command the cedars of Lebanon, be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So there it is. Solomon is beginning to walk in this purpose of building a temple for God. Now, we need to understand a little bit of the significance of this in order to understand how it, what it's communicating to us. So here's what you need to know. 
Old Testament background, right? When the people of God wandered in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt, but before going into the promised land, God gave Moses really specific instructions in Exodus about chapters 27 through 30. And then something really amazing happens if you skip over into Exodus 40. He gave them instructions for a tabernacle. That tabernacle was a place that he was inviting his people to come and worship him. Right, And so that tabernacle is a temporary thing because they're moving around in the wilderness. And so he gives them instructions about how to make a movable place of worship. And so they do that. They, they build it out to the very specific instructions of God. And in Exodus chapter 40, after making it, God descends on that tabernacle and causes his presence to be present there in a unique way from everywhere else in the earth. There's this place called the Holy of Holies in that tabernacle, and there are very specific instructions about how only certain priests may enter into that place, and only at certain times, and only through certain mechanisms and measures. When we turn now to 1 Kings, and we're in chapters 5 through 8, which describes Solomon building the temple, what we're getting is a permanent version of the tabernacle. So they've come into their home now. They've established Jerusalem as the the key to the kingdom, the center of the kingdom. And now Solomon is going to build a permanent home for God. If the tabernacle was moving around and went with them wherever they went, now we're gonna have a permanent home for God. And the message of the tabernacle and now the temple replacing that tabernacle, the message of it is simply this. It's not just, wow, they built a really neat religious building. The message of the tabernacle is God wants to be with his people. The message of the temple is God wants to be with his people. And I'll show you that when we get to chapter eight, which is gonna be just like Exodus chapter 40, where God causes his presence to descend. But friends, this is what I want you to understand. Solomon's got a calling on his life. Chapters five through eight display how he walked out that calling. But the message is not, wow, God did this thing a long time ago. The message is God is displaying to you and to me across the generations how much he wants to be with his people. The greatest gift of the Christian life is intimate, daily, close relationship with God. Nothing else. This is the greatest gift. And that it will last for eternity because we will exit this life and enter into eternity and be then fully in the presence of God and know him fully, even as he knows us fully right now, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. But I wonder how many of us don't see that as the center of our lives. Whether it's because you've walked through something hard and it's felt like God has not been there, or whether it's because you've sort of grown apathetic and indifferent because it's sort of religious ritual or intellectual proposition about God that you sort of lean into, but it's because of the way you were raised and maybe some, some anger towards your family of origin that causes you to doubt that there's a loving God who would come to you. Friends, I want you to see that the message of the temple is that God wants to be with you. And he goes to great lengths to be with you, even greater than the temple that we're gonna see built here in a few moments because it's pointing to something greater than itself. This temple is pointing to something greater than itself that says to you and to I, God wants to be with you. It's close, closer than you can possibly imagine. He wants you to wake up and take every breath 
and draw on him and see that he's with you and know that no matter where you're going or what you're going through, he's there. He is with you, with you, with you, with you. He loves you. When you sin, he doesn't back away from you. He draws closer. He leans in. He adores you. He feels sweet affection for you. He delights in you. Zephaniah chapter three says that he rejoices over you with loud singing. He dances because of the joy that he experiences in you. So don't see the building of an old religious building. See a message from God. It says, I delight, I long, I yearn to come and be with you. Now let's watch what happens next. Let's see to what great lengths God goes, all right? So just there in chapter five, we saw a couple things that God has done in order to make possible this temple that's going to be built. So the first thing we saw in, in verse four, where he said, I've given rest to Solomon on all sides. One of the reasons David could never build the temple is because he was constantly at war. There were nations that surrounded them that wanted to destroy them. And so they spent a lot of time defending themselves and also in broadening their land holdings as a kingdom. Solomon comes to the throne and he is at rest from all the enemies around him, not because he fought and won a bunch of wars and they're all subservient to him, but because God had worked on a global scale to cause all the nations around him to not be able to attack him. He had limited their power and drawn their boundaries in such a way that now Egypt and Philistia and uh, Syria and all these nations that surrounded them and Moab, they can't attack Israel. In other words, God wants to draw near to them through the building of this temple so much that he controls global events to make it happen. Isn't that cool to think about? Now, the next thing that we saw was in verses one and seven. He gave Solomon favor and success in his business and his foreign affairs. In other words, he didn't just make him wise. He gave him success in every endeavor. That's why you see Hiram, this king of Tyre, who does not worship God, does not love God, and does not know God, say, hey, you know what? I want to provide all the materials you need to build the temple. So God, and he does this, has a way of taking people who don't know him and don't love him and using them to get his worship accomplished, which is pretty amazing. So those are the links he's gone to so far. Now go with me to chapter six. Now chapter six and chapter seven are those chapters when you read through your Bible that you go, God sure is giving a lot of detail about how he furnished a building, right? So there's all this, I, I put up these cedar planks and then I poured gold over that and there was this, there were these cherubim angels that were crafted and they were put here and then this altar was put there. Have you ever read through that and been like, what is the point of this? Like, why are you telling me all this? Here's why he's telling you. He goes to great lengths to be with us. And he wants you to see how ornate and specific and beautiful and intentional he is in bringing about your ability to come to him and be with him. That's why all that's there. So next time you read through that, just think, oh my goodness, you're telling me you want to be with me. Don't think, well, that's awfully nice that that uh, washing bowl was made of gold. All right, that's not the point of that text. But chapter six and seven talk about all these furnishings. I wanna point out one verse to you in chapter six. In chapter six, verse seven, we find these words. When the house was built, 
it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Now, again, you read that and you think to yourself, okay, is it just because they wanted a really quiet workplace? I mean, is that what that was about? Like, why are we getting this description of no iron tool being used on these stones that are being laid as the foundation for the wall? Here's why. You got a little Old Testament background of what's happening here. When the people were preparing to come into the promised land, so years and years before this, there is an altar that they are commanded by God to make, and it's on a mountain called Mount Ebal, right? And so he says, when you come into the land, you will build an altar on this mountain that's right like in the entryway into the land that I'm giving to you, and I want you to establish it there so that you always have a reminder of what I've done. I want you to remember that you are called, an altar is a place of worship. It's a place where you give sacrifices to God in order to express your love and affection and your worship for him. And I want you to establish this altar at the entrance of the land because I want you to always remember what I have done and that your right response is to worship me. Does that make sense so far? And he gives specific instructions. This is in Exodus 27. He gives specific instructions about that altar. He says, when you make it, he doesn't say this about any other altar, but this one. He says, when you make it, I don't want you to use any iron tools on it. Okay, why? There's two reasons why. Because he is both displaying, I am so holy that I cannot be worshiped just with sort of human tools. You need something greater. And the second thing, and even more important for our purposes, is that he's saying to the people of Israel, I will provide everything that is needed for me to be worshiped. You don't need to cut the stones. You don't need to shape them. I've provided them. You take them. Your job, put them in place. Stack them up. And then worship me by bringing sacrifice to me. He's communicating the same thing in the building of the temple. He's saying, I don't want you to think that you are doing something great for which I will owe you something. I want you to know that I am the one doing this. Yes, I'm using your hands, but you may use no iron tool, not so you have a quiet workplace, but so that you know that I'm the one who did it. I'm the one who made the stones. I'm the one who shaped them. And I'm the one who's establishing this temple so that you can worship me. Do you see how much God wants to be with us? He's saying, I'll make the temple. Yes, I'll use your hands, but it's really me. That's what chapter six, verse seven is. Now you can read right by that and miss it, yes? But that's what he's communicating. Now, chapter seven, more descriptions, more detail about what he's done. And then we come to one of the pinnacle chapters in the entire Old Testament, chapter eight. So flip over there with me and let's look at this description. The building is built Everything's in place. The people gather for a consecration of the temple. Now they're coming to celebrate that this temple now is done. And here's what happens. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So the ark, which is the emblem, the symbol of the presence of God with his people. They would carry it into battle. And in that ark are the 10 commandments, which are the representation of the covenant God had with Israel. He said, here's my law. I'm giving it to you. No other nation, you. I'm giving you these commandments. They put those tablets of stone in the ark and they would carry them into battle. And it was meant to display God's presence going with them. So now that ark has been living in a temporary home somewhere else in the city and they're bringing it to the temple. Everybody with me? Follow that? Okay. So it says, verse two, and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, 
which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing in accordance with Old Testament law, so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim, those are angels. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. The reason the Ten Commandments are the only thing in the ark, friends, is because God is saying, I've given you these commands. I've established the covenant with you. I have come to you. You do not come to me before I come to you. So don't put any man-made endeavors, anything that you think this shows our devotion to you, God. Don't put that in the ark. The ark represents my presence with you. And the only thing that may go in there is what I have given to you, not what you give back to me. Does it make sense? Again, does God want to be with his people? Look at what great lengths he's going to. Now, the key to the whole thing. Here we go. Verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, again, friends, if you're grown up in church or you've been a Christian for a while, you may have read this passage. Hopefully you've read this passage. And as you read it, you might think, wow, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty neat. But I want you to get beyond neat today, okay? What we've just seen is that God has declared, I am manifesting my holy presence in a unique way in this space from among all the rest of the earth. My presence will be nowhere manifested in the same way it will be here in this place that I have established for you because I am coming near to you. And what happens in those verses, 10 and 11, is almost word for word what happened in Exodus chapter 40. Moses could not stand as the cloud descended on the tabernacle because the holy presence of God was there and he had to back away because of how powerful that was. Same thing with the priests here. They're doing everything according to the law. They're walking in obedience to the Lord. They're paying attention to what God has instructed them to do. And in that moment, God says, I will come down and make myself be among you. Now, this is God displaying his desire to be with his people. Look at what happens next, verses 22 and 23. Okay, so just go down just a little bit, a few verses. It says, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. I'm gonna pray now for all the people. And he says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. So that's his prayer. But now look what he's gonna say. Just drop down to verse 27. As his prayer continues, he says this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O oh Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. that You may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. So we get a hint there. I want you to see two things in chapter eight. Number one is I just keep repeating this idea. God is declaring his desire to be with his people. But then second, did you notice what he says? He says, look, in spite of what we've just witnessed, how you have caused your presence to manifest itself here, ultimately what we know is being manifested here is not the fullness of your presence because you, are, you don't dwell in human dwellings. That's not who you are. You are above that and beyond that. And we recognize it. And so he says, you have caused your what? Your name to dwell here. Now that's gonna become important in just a moment of how, how we see as wonderful as this temple is, it's not enough. It's pointing us to something better than it. A different kind of temple and a better temple, a better place of worship and a better means of worship. The temple is not an end unto itself. It's a sign pointing us to something better that we need. So he says there, your name is here. Not the fullness of your presence, but your name is here and you don't dwell here. So there's a hint there about something more that's going to be needed. So that's part one. The theme of Solomon's life, the purpose of his life to establish this temple is the whole story is God wants to be with his people. Now, how should God's people respond? With love and obedience and faithfulness. Is that how they respond? Oh my goodness, no. So the next part of the story, part two of the end of Solomon's life, the message is this, the theme is this. In spite of all that God has done to be with his people, God's people don't respond with love and obedience. They do not respond with love and obedience because we need something more than even this temple where God has come to draw near. So let's see what happens. So chapters nine and 10, all right? Now, if you, if you flip to chapter nine, this is what's going to happen. Let's look. God is going to do some things. And let me just tell you that the whole story is set up this way. Like when you're reading through scripture, sometimes read bigger parts of scripture. Don't just read like a couple verses, read chapters together because you don't get the full sense of what's happening, especially in some of these narrative texts until you see that the way this all fits together is God is going three chapters, actually, no, so four chapters of great detail about how I'm coming to be with you. And then chapter nine is gonna be like, I'm gonna warn you now about how you should live. And then chapter 10 is going to be a reminder of how much wisdom and how much wealth God has given Solomon so that when we get to chapter 11 and we see what he does, we're supposed to be shocked. We're supposed to be devastated. We're supposed to go, how could all this, how could God do all of this? And your response is that. Does that flow make sense? That's what the message is here. So look at chapter nine. We get the warning that God gives. He says, as soon as verse one, as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build. By the way, God didn't just let him build a house for the Lord. God let him build a house for himself, which is beautiful and ornate and greatly displayed his wealth. So the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon, 
And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there. Again, my name, not my full presence, but my name. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them and the house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Okay, at the risk of giving a spoiler alert, do the people of Israel go into exile out of the promised land and into a foreign land? Does that happen? Yeah, if you're new to the Bible, that happens. Does the temple get destroyed? Yes, it does. And they build a second one. Nehemiah comes back and they build another one. Ezra comes back. They build another one after the exile. And guess what happens to that one? It's in AD 70. So we know these things happen. Now, here's what we've got so far. Chapter nine, we've just finished this beautiful description of God coming to be with his people and the establishing of the, te of the temple and, and a beautiful prayer of consecration from Solomon. And God immediately gives a warning. That's the first thing he does. I'm gonna warn you. Walk in faithfulness. That's what this whole nine verses is, is be faithful. Walk in love and obedience, and it will go well with you. Now, chapter 10, I'm just gonna summarize chapter 10 for you. What happens after this is the queen of Sheba, who's queen from a, a land to the south and east of where Israel is, shows up, and she's a pretty powerful lady. She's a queen of a land that everyone wanted for their spices. So everyone wanted to trade with Sheba. And she shows up, because she'd heard rumors about Solomon's wisdom. And the summary of that chapter is simply this. She shows up and she goes, I heard how wise you are. There's no way the rumors are true. And then at the end of the chapter, she says, not only are the rumors true, they're far beyond what I could have imagined. In other words, you have wisdom surpassing anyone on the earth. Why are we being told that? Because we're being told that God has kept this promise from chapter three to give Solomon immense unsurpassed wisdom. Everybody follow that? And then to tack on to that, because in chapter three, Solomon had received from the Lord not just a promise of wisdom, but a promise of great wealth. She then proceeds to engage in trade with Solomon. And she says, and your wealth is unsurpassed among all the kingdoms of the earth. So this is one of the richest queens of the earth saying to Solomon, you are wealthy beyond imagination. There is no king who has the kind of wealth and the kind of wisdom that you have. Now, again, the purpose of all that is for us to hear what God has done so that we are going to be or supposed to be shocked at what happens next. God has warned. God has blessed the work. God has given wisdom and God has given wealth. Will any of those things sustain Solomon in faithfulness? Sadly, the answer is no. And friends, here's the message for you and I. 
no matter what work God gives you to do and blesses, no matter how much wealth he gives you, no matter how much wisdom, I struggle with this one, no matter how much wisdom, how could you have this much wisdom and still make the decision he's about to make? No matter how much wisdom. What did I say? Did I say wealth? I said work. I said wisdom, right? And no matter how many warnings, none of it is sufficient to keep us faithful. Something greater must come than even those things. So let's go to chapter 11. Everybody take a deep breath. (sighs) You can sigh, it's okay. Here's what happens in chapter 11. Remember those seeds of unrighteousness in chapter three? Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter. We're told he shouldn't have done that. It's hinted at, well, chapter 11, verse one. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Have you got the theme yet? How many times did we hear they turned away his heart? And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. He won't even call them gods. He just calls them abominations. You catching that? And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So chapter 11, here's what we've just heard. The kingdom is gonna be divided in two. Israel will be divided. God in faithfulness will keep one of David's line on the throne of uh, one tribe, right? And he considers Judah and Benjamin to be like one. They're two tribes, but they're so closely related. He really speaks of them as one. And the rest of the nation will be ruled by a different king, not from the line of David. And everyone will be the worse for it. Solomon does not walk in faithfulness in, light of, in spite of the fact that God has drawn near. Now, a couple lessons here. Number one, the time we have to be most vigilant about not sowing seeds of unrighteousness that will years later produce a harvest of unrighteousness is when we're actually walking in the favor and blessing of God the most. That is the time it is easiest to excuse sowing seeds of unrighteousness. Oh, God's blessing my work. 
There's so much good stuff happening. Clearly, God favors me. Clearly, things are going well. Clearly, I know how much he loves me. And in that moment, have you found that it's very easy to justify, but I'll just do this thing over here, which isn't totally on the up and up. Yes, that's the time it's easiest. And that's exactly what's happening with Solomon. God is pouring out wealth upon wealth and wisdom upon wisdom, and yet he still justifies, well, I'll just, you know what, like, just, just a military, you know, I need this political linkage here, so I'll marry this woman. You know, I just, she's kind of cute. I think I'll just, you know, it's God, surely. It's gonna be okay. He goes on into these seeds of unrighteousness. So friends, the vigilance that we need to not sow those seeds in seasons of victory and in seasons of blessing. Now, Here's what, I already said this. I'm just gonna repeat it here real quick. If all the wisdom and all the wealth and all the work, all the warnings, if they're not sufficient to keep Solomon faithful, then what is? That's the question that should be ringing in our ears, right? Okay, well then what on earth, if, if he gets all of this and God's presence comes to dwell with them, he places his name on the temple, if that's not enough to keep him faithful, then what is this story about? What is it pointing to? And that's where we turn to the third part of Solomon's life, which is actually not during Solomon's life. It's all the way forward into the New Testament because in the New Testament, we have God establishing the third theme of Solomon, the end of Solomon's life, the story. And it's this, God provides a better temple. God provides a better place and means of worship and his name is Jesus. He is the better temple where we encounter God. Let me show you how Jesus is a better temple than the temple of Solomon. And here's why this better temple can keep us faithful. Where the old temple could not cause the people, in spite of the manifestation of God's presence there, in spite of the glory of God descending and dwelling among them and saying, I want to be with you, in spite of all of that glory and goodness, it could not keep Solomon nor the people faithful. And so they go into exile. Is there anything that can keep us faithful? Yes, there is. His name is Jesus. And he has done so much to bring you into the presence of God, to draw God near to you, that he can keep you faithful. We sang at the beginning of our service, he will hold me fast. My love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. Do you know that in Jesus, you have a true and better temple who is able to keep you faithful? So let me show you how. Let me show you how he is the better temple. So in Jesus, we have a temple who was destroyed and raised. This earthly temple was destroyed and never raised again in its glory. In the second temple, we do not see, even when Nehemiah and Ezra come back into the land and they rebuild the temple, we get no description of God's presence manifesting itself there in the same way that we did in this. There is no deep sense in which God will allow an earthly temple to be reestablished in a way that causes his glory to be manifested there. Why? because it's pointing to Jesus, who though he was destroyed, was raised. And where an earthly temple is temporary, Jesus as our true temple is what? Permanent. Do you know what that means? It means Jesus as our temple, as our place and means of worship of God, the way that God says, I want to be with you, is never separated from us. He is destroyed and raised and lives forever forever. 
at the right hand of God to facilitate the worship of the people of God. He is right now interceding for you at the right hand of God. He is right now representing you before the throne of his father. He is right now among us as we worship God through him. He is right now present in a way that is beyond your wildest imagination. And we walk in here without any sense of expectation that he would do anything powerful or mighty among us. It's astounding. Come with expectation. Come with fervor and excitement and energy and joy and give yourself unabandonedly to God when we come to worship him because he is our temple who is here saying, I want you to be with me and I can never be separated from you because I live. I live forever. I live, I live. Not only that, this temple, this earthly temple was established at pretty significant cost. And I promise you that if you had been there, you would have thought, wow, the effort and the energy and the resources applied to, to making God's presence here with us is so remarkable. The cost that was paid by Jesus to become our temple was his own blood. It is a compelling cost. Over time, no matter how much money is spent on an earthly building that causes you to go, wow, what a beautiful thing, eventually it gets old. If you stand in front of the most glorious building in all the earth, do you think if you looked at it every day over a, the course of a year, you might, it might become kind of secondhand to you, like, ah, no big deal. You think? Let me tell you how I know that. How many of you have ever lived in a place where there are mountains? And you look at the mountains every day, and eventually it's just like the first time you drove out there, weren't you like, this is amazing? And then over time you go, eh, yeah, they're just the mountains. They're astounding. They're astonishing, right? Amanda and I talk about this all the time. Uh, where we lived in Texas, not that pretty, a lot of brown. And then we moved here and there's rolling hills and green and trees that are, we, we drove here, we're like, I can't believe we get to live in a place that's beautiful. Now I drive through and I'm like, yeah, it's okay. It's gorgeous here. The cost that Jesus paid to become our temple is part of what compels us. When you look at his sacrifice, the blood shed for you so that he could say to you, I want to be with you. Does it compel you? I pray it does. That cost will never not compel. Not only is Jesus a more compelling cost, not only is he the temple who was destroyed and raised, he is the temple, well, I said, who will live forever. Do you know in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, Description of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming into that place. You want to know one of the coolest parts of that chapter is at the end of it, we're expecting there to be a temple. It's the new Jerusalem. It's come down out of heaven. We would say, oh, great. There's going to be a new temple, some, some new version of the temple, just like there was this temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And God says, there will be no temple in the new Jerusalem that I have just brought down out of heaven. Why? Because I myself, God, and the Lamb, who is Jesus, are the temple. We are the permanent place of worship, and now we are with you. That's where we're headed. The new heaven and the new earth, with Jesus as our temple. Not only that, I made a pretty significant point to try and point out that in chapter eight, we saw that God's name would dwell in this temple. In other words, not the fullness of his presence, but his name would be there. In Jesus, we have a temple in whom the fullness of God's presence dwells. It's not just a foreshadowing. In Jesus, you do not have just a taste of the presence of God. You have the full presence of God with you. 
in you. And that's the next thing. Jesus is a better temple because the old temple was a place you had to go to. You would journey, you would pilgrimage. Whole sections of the Psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent because they are the Psalms that the people would repeat and sing as they journeyed once a year to Jerusalem to, during the high holy days and the Passover in order to offer sacrifices and worship to God together as a people. But it was a journey, it was a slog, it was work, and they had to go there. And now Jesus, our temple, has said, I'm not some place you must go. I have come to you and dwell inside of you so that the temple is no longer a building to go to. It is a place, it is a person who has come to you. And not only that, but Jesus is our true and better temple who doesn't allow us to slip into ritualistic, legalistic worship because buildings where you go perform ceremonies over time become old and decrepit and they become ritualized and it becomes about formats and formulas and Jesus says, you don't come to a temple that's a building made by human hands. You come to me, a person, and I will guard you against ritualism because now the place of your worship is a person, not a place. You come to me and you enjoy me and you walk with me and you love me and you will never, ever be given over to this ritualism that leads to unfaithfulness every time because it cannot be sustained. Now, go back to what we said at the very beginning. God wants to be with his people. Let me give you one point of application, and then we're gonna sing together. How can we be faithful? Unlike Solomon, how can we change it? No amount of warnings that God will give us will work. No amount of wisdom that he might pour out upon you will work. No amount of wealth that he might bless you with will keep you faithful. Can we agree with that? The only thing that, wor that works is when we understand that in Jesus, God has said, I have come to you. And if we center our lives around enjoying the presence of God in Christ, center everything. Look, go, don't go do spiritual disciplines to be disciplined. Go before God who has paid at great cost to come to you and to be with you and enjoy him. Make it the great ambition of your life to take hold of the greatest gift of Christian faith, which is daily, close, intimate, loving fellowship with God. He sees you. He knows you. He's with you. He delights in you. Delight in him. Make everything you do about delighting more in God. And at least one thing that means for us is that we should give great energy to revolving our lives around worshiping God together and coming here with expectation and joy and regularity. When you wake up on Sunday morning and think, do I wanna go? Tell yourself, my whole life is staked on being a worshiper of God and come and be with us. One of the trends that everyone talks about in church life now is that those who used to be regular attenders would come, like I think 20 years ago, it was like, two and a half times a month. And now the, the average regular church attender is like one and a half times a month. So there's something happening in the church, not, not just here, but there's something happening in the church. And I just, I just wanna beg you and implore you, do you see that your life is meant to be spent enjoying God? Yes? That's what will keep you in faithfulness. If you enjoy him above everything else, delight in him above everything else, disciplines won't keep you, warnings won't keep you, wealth won't keep you, wisdom won't keep you, you delight in enjoying the presence of God. And here's the thing. 
He's made that possible because he has given us Jesus, our better temple. It's possible. It's possible to enjoy and delight in God above all other things. Part of learning to do that is revolving your life around worship and praise, receiving the word of God together. It's just one point of application. Renew yourself, renew yourself in that. Come into the presence of God together. My hope is in the days ahead that we would find ourselves coming in here so hungry, so hungry, that what would explode out of us is passionate worship, deeply biblical, mind-grounded in the word of God, worship, that we would be renewed in that way and that God would ignite a fire through that worship that spreads out of this building and into your workplace and into schools and into neighborhoods, that everywhere we go, the worship of God is brought forth. It begins here. It begins here in this great gift that we have, brothers and sisters in fellowship and in worship of the king. All right, let me pray. Stand with me. We'll sing to the Lord to close our time. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Solomon's life. Thank you that you are not a respecter of persons, that you hide the flaws and the failings of your servants in the scriptures. Again and again, we see those flaws and it reminds us that they're in us too. But we thank you that you have done something bigger and better than you did for Solomon. Jesus, set our eyes on you. Would you receive our praises now? You're worthy of them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.